We are interrupting your regular program to bring you some powerful images unfolding at this hour. These images just moments ago from Andrews Air Force Base, now known as Joint Base Andrews as well, where as you can see the caskets carrying the bodies of those four Americans killed in Libya, about to be brought off the plane there and into a hangar on the base. Of course, among those killed, U.S. Ambassador Chris Stevens, as well as Sean Smith, Glenn Doherty, Tyrone Woods, their bodies have all been brought back home. You can see the caskets coming off the planes. Chris Stevens was a career diplomat and served two tours in Libya, helping the rebels actually save the city of Benghazi from Libyan leader Muammar Gaddafi. Sean Smith was an Air Force veteran who worked as an information management specialist. Glenn Doherty, a former Navy SEAL working for a private security, he was 42. His sister actually saying he was the best of the best. Went on to say he wouldn't have gone down for some protest over a movie. This was a serious, well-planned, well-executed attack. He was very good at what he did, in her words. And of course, Tyrone Woods, a former Navy SEAL who served multiple tours in Iraq, Afghanistan. Three sons and a family member saying he loved life, loved adrenaline. You could not find a more skilled SEAL than him. President Obama also faced some serious questions last night about his administration's response to that deadly attack in Benghazi, the one that cost four Americans their lives. Tonight, we have learned that Ambassador Chris Stevens, who was killed in the attack, repeatedly voiced concern about security in Libya, including, we are told, on the day he died. ABC's Jake Tapper has the details. They're the questions the president cannot escape. Why do we still not know what went wrong in Benghazi? And why was the administration's response so confusing? Last night, comedian John Stewart took his turn. I would say even you would admit it was not the optimal response, at least to the American people, as far as us all being on the same page. Well, here, here's what I'll say. John Hendricks. I have a special episode for this week's podcast. Uh, my guest is Sarah Adams, and Sarah was an intelligence analyst and targeter with the CIA, and she's also the author of a book named Benghazi, Know Thy Enemy, A Cold Case Investigation. Uh, Sarah, how's it going? Good. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for coming on. Um, I've been uh, following you on social media for a while, and um, you know, on, on the different platforms, uh, and your book, uh, I haven't read the book, but I, I, you know, I am familiar with the situation and, um, and some of the frustrations surrounding that. Um, so we'll talk about your book and, and Benghazi. Um, but before we do that, can we talk about, uh, your career at the agency and, and maybe what sort of led you into, uh, that kind of work? Yeah, sure. You want me to just start where, when I got started or like when I applied? Yeah, or like maybe right before and sort of what like what kind of led you to deciding to join the CIA? Yeah, sure. So my undergrad was in international business. And back, you know, in the 90s when I was in college, it was like a new degree and kind of trendy. But they didn't really have any kind of plan for once you finished your degree where you'd go. So when I finished my undergrad, I decided I needed to probably get a master's. And that's when I kind of shifted over to international relations. So 
it brought me to like the political science side of things. And then the school I was at had a very strong like regional security focus because um, we had a lot of like Navy students there. So that's kind of how I got a lot more involved in like and interested in terrorism related issues. So while in grad school, my thesis was actually on the Kashmir region of you know India and Pakistan. So it was having done my thesis on that, that made me apply to CIA because obviously it would be the best place to work on that region. So, uh, you know, prior to that, uh, did you have like any sort of like, you know, patriotic sentiments? Did you, you have any family that served uh, in, in any capacity? Yeah, I mean, my grandfather served in the Navy and then my sister served in the Army. Okay. Okay, so then... You know, sort of talking about the 90s, um, you know, what we know now is sort of, you know, transnational terrorism. I, it, I guess it looked a little bit different um, back then, like compared to what it looks like now. Um, and then, you know, Kashmir is a, for folks who don't know, is a, a region that's uh, disputed between Pakistan and India. Um, and I, I guess there's always, you know, conflict surrounding that area. Um Okay, so the, but then in, in particular with Kashmir, what, was there elements of of what we now recognize as you know terrorism or Islamic terrorism? Oh yeah, um, basically starting you know um, maybe like mid '90s is kind of when all those big like um, Pakistani militant groups set up base and they set up all their training camps on the Pakistan side of. Um, the border. And that's kind of where you get those big groups like Lashkar-e Taiba, um, Jaishi Muhammad. So you, so you hear those names a lot because they're the ones who do a lot of the attacks in India. So yeah, that started in the 90s as well. And and uh, from as far as I understand it, some of those groups, uh, if, maybe if not all of them, were established with some kind of support from the Pakistani government. Yeah, it was a mix of things. Um, you know, some actually did fight over in Afghanistan and got, you know, their kind of jihadi roots there. Some actually even um, started in the Pakistani military. Um, and then when they finished, like, serving their, their time and retired, um, it, it was more of a, a better segue than maybe being a security manager at a bank because there wasn't a lot of um, follow-on jobs in Pakistan for, like, you know, like an elite um, special forces type of person. And then, yeah. The um, the Pakistani government uses a lot of the Kashmiri militant groups um, almost as like another layer of protection because a good chunk of them are nationalists. So they do get um, support for the government and they definitely get a lot of like cover. So, so it's really hard to go after the leaders in those groups, for example, when they do commit terrorism and other kinds of crimes. So like, you know, th- those kind of groups, right, their leaders. Um, so I know like during the, the Afghanistan war, you know, some of the leaders of the groups that were fighting against the U.S. and the coalition forces, you know, they'll be fighting in Afghanistan, but some of the leadership would be uh, living in Pakistan in the tribal areas. Uh, would, would, the, would it be a similar situation for these groups who are, uh, you know, fighting against the Indian government or, or in Kashmir? Yeah. So if you go back to the the 90s, you know, um, when they were fighting in Afghanistan, they were on the side of the U.S. government. So we might even have um, enabled some of them, as you can imagine. And then, yeah, these later, we're talking about 
last 20 years of the war. While they're based in um, the Kashmir region, um, a lot of them actually went and trained in Afghanistan and they committed attacks against some of our bases in Afghanistan. Because as you can imagine, it was a good place for them to, you know, get their practice in, right? They finished training camp. Um, and, you know, Afghanistan was a great place for them to be sent to, to, to carry out attacks. So a lot of those Kashmir groups, a lot of people don't pay as much attention to them, but they, a lot of them also committed attacks in Afghanistan against U.S. forces. Okay, so um, so then can we talk about, in, in whatever level of detail you're comfortable with, like, um, you know, your experience at the agency and if maybe you can talk about what the... Um, what the job of a targeter is? Yeah, sure. So when I first went into the agency, um, I was basically hired in as what was called a political analyst that lasted maybe like a week. <laughs> um, and then they rotated me into a new position that they were developing called a targeting analyst. Um, basically, the, the idea of targeting, you know, it came out of the CIA um, and it's in a little bit of the special operations community. And it's the thought that hey, we have all these really great people doing operations and we have all these really great people writing analysis, but we don't exactly have someone in the middle that takes the greatness from both and combines it and helps move operations forward. So that was kind of where it started. A lot of it started out of, um, in the CIA, they call it Alex Station. That was kind of the original shop that, that went after Al-Qaeda and they really probably developed targeting before they knew it was targeting. And then they kind of set the groundwork for what became the future of targeting. And then the CIA put like a real course in the play. Um, you know, I was maybe halfway through my time in the CIA and I was only in the sixth running of a targeting course. But when I joined the CIA as an analyst all the way back in 2006, I was in the 66th running of the analytic course. So, so targeting is still a very new career path, even at the CIA. Um, you know, it's only about what, maybe 12 years old now. Um, so, so that's kind of generally what you do. I mean, the most famous, you know, um, kind of depiction of a targeter is Zero Dark Thirty, right? When, when Maya goes and, and finds Bin Laden, that's um, what a lot of targeters are known for. But you find a bunch of different leads, not just terrorists. Right. Um, and I, I've done podcasts with, uh, you know, guys who are at the CIA for a long time and, and women as well. And um, and one guy I spoke to, he he kind of spoke about what it was like because he was he was there for uh, I don't know, like almost thirty years, I think I want to say, and um, so he was there like before the the focus moved from like you know Cold War Soviet stuff, mm -hmm. and then it moved over to to counterterrorism, and um, and then I guess in in many ways this the CIA became sort of an action arm uh, like on, in, in sort of uh, these different battlefields across the world. Uh, and then that was like where, you know, where the targeting came in. Um, but it's, it's really fascinating stuff. And, uh, and can you talk about how long you were at the CIA for? Yeah, I spent about um, a decade there. I started in 2006 and I left in 2015. Okay, and then... Um, you know, from the time that you started to the time that you left, did you like were there like major changes in the um, in maybe some of the focus or in the way that you guys did business? 
Um, you know, as you can imagine, in different administrations, they have different focuses. And then obviously with different directors, you have different focuses. What the CIA tried to do after kind of some of the pitfalls from 9-11 is they try to move you about every three years to like a new account. So I basically pretty much worked in three different shops, you know, within those 10 years, you know, following along that cycle. So you, you basically then almost start working something completely new or completely different. So um, so it's a good way, obviously, to learn a lot across the agency. And it's also a really good way, as you can imagine, to network across the agency, because that's kind of how you move on to your next spot or that's how you get your next rotation overseas. You know, it's, it's the relationship building. Okay. And, um, and I don't know if you can answer this, but did you spend most of your time overseas or did you split time in the States and overseas? Um, I think when I left, I maybe had two and a half, almost three years overseas. And then the rest was, um, yeah, based at headquarters. Okay. Okay. So, okay. So you were there for 10 years. Um, and then within that 10 years, uh, in 2012, there was attack uh, in Benghazi, Libya, uh, that resulted in the death of uh, several Americans, including the, the ambassador. Um, and there was a whole, uh, you know, it, it became political. And I mean, for lack of a better term, it was a shit show. Um, I, I'd done an early podcast, like I started podcasting in 2016. And I think that was right around the time that uh, the Benghazi movie came out. Mm-hmm. Um, and the uh, the CIA security contractors were involved in that movie, and they were very critical of the the efforts of the or, or lack of effort on the side of the Obama administration on um, you know doing whatever they could to to, to help uh, these Americans who eventually lost their lives there. Um, and I'm friends with some guys who were. U.S. Army Special Forces, and um, they were assigned to Africa as a, a crisis response force, and they were in a um, in a, a special operations compound in North Carolina, and and were watching you know drone feeds and listening to radio communications. So they had uh, situational awareness uh, as this was happening, and, and we spoke about it in some detail uh, back in 2016. Um, but what? What made you want to write your book and and did you have like sort of direct involvement with any of what happened in Libya? Yeah. So, um, you know, as a quick background, just to go to the last part of your question, you know, I was serving in Benghazi. Um, I, I was serving in Libya most of 2012, actually, but I went to Benghazi in August of 2012. So um, the day of the attacks, I flew up to Europe for a meeting and then I came back the next day. So I missed the entirety of the attacks, just kind of being on a, a, a quick TDY trip. Um, what motivated me, we actually never did, there was never any intention to do a book. So me and one of the, my co-author, he's actually one of the other um, co-authors of 13 Hours, Dave Boone Benton. We decided in 2015 to start our own investigation and actually identify all the terrorists involved. We got to the point where we decided to put it in a book form, gosh, maybe a year and a half, two years ago. It was in, a, it was in you know, the process of getting approved for about 15 months, so it took a bit. But we put it in book form so we could share it because, you know, I'm still government, so I can't just go around and 
um, send off all the weird stuff in my investigation to foreign people. So we thought, hey, the best way to share it and expose it to everyone was to drop it in a book. So that's kind of when it became in book form. Okay, so and so Boone, uh, he was a security contractor or was he a CIA officer? Yeah, he was one. Of, he was the same as Tonto, Tig, and Oz. He was on their team, and he's okay. also depicted in Thirteen Hours. Okay, and and Thirteen Hours is a, I think they did a, a fantastic job, um, sort of de- depicting what happened, and and um, you know, I, obviously it was a tragic event ultimately, but I think they did a good job with the movie. Um, okay, so then can you just lay out uh, like what happened? Uh, and then, you know, where the issues begun to arise in the aftermath of the incident. Sure. Just, you know, like the really quick down and dirty is it was a June 2012. Um, U.S. did a drone strike in Pakistan. It, it basically took out the third of the four top senior leaders in Al Qaeda, you know, within a couple year time frame, you know, being um, obviously bin Laden. Um, you know, in his raid. And then there was two drone strikes that took out the, basically the number two twice, which were both Libyans. So by the time now this this third senior leader, you know, kind of came off the battlefield, um, Dr. Ayman al-Zawahiri was the al-Qaeda leader. And that was his deputy. Um, so and then the, he's the Egyptian guy, right? Yes. Yeah, so he's the one okay. that died last summer in Kabul. Yes. So, so now this was his deputy, and then the drone strike before that killed the other d- Libyan was also his deputy. So that's when he decided in, in June of 2012 to do a, an attack against the U.S. in Libya. And so what he did is he handed it off to like the North Africa branch of al-Qaeda and said, hey, you guys plan it, you guys carry it out. And that's kind of when it morphed a bit into... Um, what was actually end up being a kidnapping operation because at the time in North Africa, especially on the Egyptian side of things, there was a big push to get the rest of the terrorists out of prison who didn't get released during the Arab Spring. So they actually initially planned it um, as a kidnapping of the ambassador and they chose Benghazi because of the lack of security. So they basically were just patient knowing um, Chris Stevens would go back there because, you know, as everyone knows, during the Libyan revolution, he led the revolution from the ground in Benghazi. And then in May of 2012, he actually returned to Libya as an official ambassador. So they kind of sat waiting until he returned to Benghazi to do the operation. So, OK, so and then Chris Stevens, he, he ultimately lost his life in, in this attack. Um, but so th- there was a, a ton of sort of controversy surrounding this um, when it first happened, if I can recall correctly, I think the Obama administration, uh, I think they said something like it was a a reaction to like, I don't know, some, I, I don't really remember, but yeah. I think it was like a reaction to something that was like, it seemed kind of trivial. Yeah, um, there was a movie that came out, it came out maybe around spring of that year, um, um, it was like an anti-Muslim film. And then a little mm. closer to the attacks, like a translated version of it came out. Um, they basically chose that, you know, as um, 
the reason to pin it on that it was actually those talking points were created by Jake Sullivan, who's now, I guess, you know, our national security director. And he's the one that pushed that said, hey, this would be a good idea to use this. Um, And then unfortunately, the administration ran with it. Um, I think the frustrating part for most of us on the ground is sure, um, even though press would have been there if there would have been a protest. A week later, the whole U.S. government had the consulate surveillance footage and knew there was never in a protest and knew it was an attack. Um, and then they had other collection. No, Al-Qaeda was there. So the fact that they kind of kept covering it up, I think, is then when people kind of got really frustrated. And that's when you saw, the, you know, that GRS team of Tonto, Tegan, Oz decide to break cover and go public. And so that's kind of when um, a lot of us in the shadows started saying, hey, you know, enough is enough. Like you, you have the evidence that none of this is true. Like now we know you're doing it for politics. And I think that's what frustrated all of us on the ground. Hmm. So it's like, um, if I can recall, I think um, perhaps there was some level of like anti-Muslim sentiment in the West, um, you know, with the war in Iraq, Afghanistan and and. Uh, these sort of terror attacks that were happening all, all around the world, really. But uh, so I think there was some level of, uh, you know, ideas within the Obama administration that they they didn't want to sort of perpetuate this anti-Islamic uh, sentiment. So do you think that's why they they ran with the story that they did? Like, because it just seems like kind of strange that they wouldn't just say, "Hey, this is what happened." Uh, you know, this was a a targeted operation carried out by Al Qaeda. Like, why would they not just come out and say that? Like, what do you think the motivation was for like this sort of weird story they came out with? Yeah, well, if you remember at the time, actually, their major talking point was we defeated Al Qaeda. Al Qaeda is on the run. Um, and, and they were saying okay. that pretty heavily. And remember, the election was a few months away. Um, so they, they needed to stick with that narrative because obviously it was just proven incorrect because Al Qaeda sent 150 terrorists to a, to a U.S. consulate, you know. So unfortunately, it was just to hold the, the Al Qaeda's defeated narrative, sadly. I see. I see. And yeah, and I think, yeah, the election was right, right around then. And, it, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's unfortunate because, um, like, obviously, Obama's a Democrat. And I feel most of the uh, uh, sort of mil- military community or, you know, the, a percentage of the military and sort of defense apparatus community personally lean uh, conservative or, or at least center or right or whatever. And, um, and, you know, despite that, I've heard from guys who were in, in particular in the special operations side uh, who served during the Obama administration said when it came to like you know getting the green light for targeting terrorists and stuff like that they had no problem with with uh you know with, with his direction because he he was kind of about you know going right like he gave the green light to go after bin laden which was politically kind of risky to go into pakistan without letting them know right but um it, it's just crazy that they would play politics in a situation where an american ambassador was killed um and and other Americans died trying to defend you know defend him and, and themselves. Um, so and and then they they named an individual uh, who they said was, was responsible. And was that the guy who was actually uh, responsible for the like directing the attack, or was it someone else? 
Yeah. So, so they named and then they went in and captured an individual. His name is Ahmed Abu Katala, and he got a, a 22-year sentence in the United States. So yeah, they named him as the actual mastermind. Um, he actually showed up to the attacks late, and then he didn't even go into the compound until after um, Al-Qaeda left. So he actually was only ever a looter. He was an easy pickup. Like He was kind of that low-hanging fruit. He worked every day on his construction site. He has some mental issues. Um, some people say he's always had them. Some people say it was some torture um, during Gaddafi's time because he spent time in the infamous Abu Salim prison. Um, regardless, he um, <laughs> the, the, the terrorists in Libya call him a scapegoat. It's actually a big joke there that um, the U.S. T- took him. Um, and as you can imagine, for us, we found it very offensive. <laughs> um, the mastermind was actually an individual named Mokhtar Belmokhtar. He had um, served in Afghanistan during those Mujahideen years. And then he ran one of the biggest battalions in Al-Qaeda's North African branch at the time. Okay. And, um, okay, so let's step back a second. So you were, you were in Libya, you left, uh, and the attack took place and then you went back. Yes. So then I obviously went back to Tripoli because Benghazi, you know, we, we shut it down. So yeah, then I went back to Tripoli and I served till the end of November of 2012 in Tripoli. And then can you talk about, um, you know, what things were like afterwards, uh, you know, was there like an increase in security? Uh, were you looking for the guys that you thought were responsible? Like, what were the days after? Like, yeah. So um, we got, you know, th- that fast team came in within, you know, forty-eight hours after the attack. So one was based at the embassy, and one was based with us at the CIA annex. So we had, you know, a, like a fast team from Rota, Spain. So that was the increased security we got, we didn't get any more like CIA personnel for security. And then as you can imagine, some of the people from Benghazi now moved to the, the, the CIA annex in Tripoli. So we actually ended up with more CIA bodies, you know, like case officers and stuff, because now they're they're in Tripoli vice um, Benghazi. So the biggest focus, as you can imagine, is getting everybody we knew from Benghazi to travel to Tripoli to talk to them to find out what they knew about the attacks. And then the FBI ended up coming out, too, and starting their investigation. So I helped support their investigation when it kicked off in country. So those are kind of the things we focused on in the first couple months after. It was collecting what we could on the attackers. And, and the, uh, the FAST teams, are those State Department security guys? No, they were um, Marines. Okay, okay. Yes. They were based in Rota, Spain, and then they came... Um, maybe really late on the 12th and maybe early on the 13th of September. Okay. Okay. So, um, okay. So then you and and Boone decide that you're going to put this, uh, you know, the results of your investigation into the book. Uh, you know, you have to go through the approval process. Uh, that takes time. I think you said 15 months. Um, Mm -hmm. And then, you know, they, they give it back. Did they, like, redact a bunch of things, or was it pretty straightforward? No, it was pretty straightforward. Um, there was only one redaction. We didn't really get reversed. Um, so, But other than that, it was, like, a person's name. But he wasn't one of the actual attackers. He's more kind of in the complicit category. So, um, you know, we didn't fight super hard on that. So, you know, we got to keep every attacker, and that's kind of what mattered to us. So, yeah, very little um, redactions. And actually, because I'm now... 
a DOD body, we went through the whole CIA process, and then we had to submit the book also to the Department of Defense and went through their process. Mm, okay. And like, so even though everything that you were focused on was from your time at the agency, the, the DOD still had to review it just because you were working for them? or Yeah, correct. Okay. So, so then let's talk about the book a little bit. Um, like, so can you just kind of lay out like, you know, what, what it consists of and then maybe sure. give some detail on, on the book itself? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty straightforward. You know, we start the book and we just kind of tell you, you know, how we ended up in Benghazi. Then we walk through what I did at the beginning of, um, you know, our chat is just kind of like what Al-Qaeda planned to do and, and how the attack, you know, was laid out when we thought they chose the final date, like those kind of basics. We spend some time talking because, as you know, there was a mortar strike also on the CIA annex. That ends up being completely separate. That wasn't the same Al-Qaeda attack as the consulate. It was just another terrorist in town taking advantage of the situation. So we kind of explain the difference between the attacks on the consulate and the attacks on the CIA just for the reader to understand. And then we do three, pretty much the whole book then just walks through the dossiers of every terrorist involved. So they're like, there's one, the first chapter is all the senior leaders, you know, so like we talked about Zawahiri. And then, sorry, my Lexus going off. <laughs> and then the next chapter is kind of like all the senior leaders. So kind of every group leader that gave attackers to the attacks, like those type of people, like the, the, the terrorists who issued the fatwa, you know, in advance to make it legal, you know, in Islam for them to do the attack. You kind of got that big tranche of people. And then there's a hundred plus of just like the door kickers who were the actual terrorists, you know, doing the attack. And so we walk through every person we can. Um, we, we made standards for, you know, obviously we have a big investigation with thousands of names. So for the book, we decided we'd only include the terrorists we confirmed are at the consulate or the annex, but most of the consulate. Um, that we had a photo of, and then that we had their full true name. So those are the ones you're going to see in the book. So if, if we were still running down one of those pieces, um, they don't have like their own profile in the book. Okay. And then c could you just explain, uh, you know, Boone's background a little bit? Like was he military and then CIA sure. contractor? Yeah. So, so Boone, um, when he was young, starting in the early 90s, joined the Marine Corps, and he was a sniper um, in the Marine Corps. And then, as you can imagine, there just wasn't a lot going on at the time. I mean, he spent some time in Bosnia, but, um, you know, it was, it was a slow time to be in the military. So he got out, and he actually became a cop and, and was doing, like, SWAT type of work. Um, and then during that time, as you can imagine, 9-11 happened. So like most people, he showed back up at the Marine um, recruiting location and said, put me back in. Um, during that time when he was thinking of planning to go back in, the State Department reached out to him um, and they said, hey, we're, we're going to set up these teams, you know, to um, start protecting people, you know, in high threat environments. You know, obviously, Afghanistan and then Iraq ended up being. Um, so he joined actually State Department first. So he was in their diplomatic security service. And then from there, he ended up getting recruited out to CIA. So, um, so yeah, he's been protecting people for a long time now. Okay. Uh, hold on one second. I got a... No worries. Ambulance driving by. Okay. So, and so some of the other 
guys who were killed uh, with Ambassador Stevens, they were from the State Department's Diplomatic Security Services? Well, so none of, so Diplomatic Security Service was there, but um, thankfully none of their officers was killed. One was severely wounded, but he luckily survived. So the other two um, security personnel were CIA, so they were GRS, that was Ronan Bubb. And then the last State Department person that was killed was Sean Smith. And he was like their commo guy, you know, like he did all the communications and the computer stuff at the consulate. Oh, okay, right. And uh, and Bub, he was a former Navy SEAL, if I can recall, right? Yeah, both Bub and Roan um, spent their whole career in the SEAL. So they served their, you know, their entire 20 years, they retired. And then like most... Um, of the good at special ops people, you know, CIA recruited them into um, GRS. So would it be f- accurate to say that most GRS personnel are like retired special ops guys? Yeah, I'd say the, ma- if, yeah, the majority of um, GRS is, is definitely special ops to, to where they had entire careers in it for the most part, most of the ones I know anyway. Okay. Okay. So then, you know, looking at the um, the entirety of the situation, you know, there were some issues with the sort of politics around it. You know, what the Obama administration, you know, said was the you know like this happened because you know of this reaction to this film uh, when that wasn't the truth. Uh, were there other other sort of issues that you had with their telling of what happened or their response to the situation? I mean, I think the biggest one is obviously, if you can imagine, if the false narrative of not being a terrorist attack stopped them from ever going after the terrorists. So that's obviously the biggest lasting effect. Um, I think some of the other stuff that upsets people is, um, you know, they had all this ownership over Libya, right? They went in, they took up Gaddafi, you know, they were kind of running on their victory in Libya and then but then they couldn't admit yeah we actually didn't really protect our um, facilities well and oh yeah there were 600 requests for security and we denied every one of them so I think that really frustrated a lot of people and also made people as you can imagine worried at other embassies and consulates and you know a lot of them started even writing tips into the you know different congressional offices saying hey we're at a consulate just like Benghazi. We also don't have the security we need. Um, and so I think a lot of people were a little frustrated, like, hey, are they going to take this serious and, you know, improve this in other locations? And so so I think that's still something that they did improve, like, the training for their DSS officers, which is good. But I'm not sure there's been any significant improvement to security um, at embassies and consulates as a result. Because as you can imagine, if you don't claim responsibility for doing something, then you're not going to take the lead on fixing something. And so that's, that's a frustrating thing, um, you know, within the community. Mm. And then of course, um, you know, there were attacks, uh, in the nineties, uh, at, uh, different U S, uh, uh, government properties in Africa, mm-hmm. uh, Tanzania and, and other places. Um, so it's, and then especially, you know, with the threat of, of these different terror groups, like you would just kind of assume, like, you know, maybe we should beef up security. Uh, obviously, we have the capability to do it. Um, 
Okay, so then, and then, so you said afterwards they didn't really increase security at, at, at sort of at risk uh, locations or? They yeah, they didn't Im implement like a large security plan, you know, like to be like, hey, what, what other locations are having these issues? What other locations have sent in large numbers of requests? Like there wasn't anything actually proactive to be like, hey, are there other Benghazis? To actually be honest, it actually was leading people to downplay um, at their locations, you know. So, you know, Boone, Boone went on to another country. And at that location, they actually had a couple incidences um, with terrorists. And they actually, their, their boss was like, hey, we're not going to report it. We don't want to become another Benghazi and be shut down. So you also had people um, pushing back against improving security because they didn't want it to lead to them closing down like their station or base or the consular to the location. So, so Benghazi became just the, such a negative thing on so many fronts, as you can imagine, and hindered other work. Wow, that's crazy. And so, okay, so then in a, in a scenario where like a, a chief of base or, or whoever's in charge, like they would say, we're not going to report this. What do you think? I mean, obviously they don't want to get shut down, but like what would be the the sort of negative consequences of shutting that place down? Like, would it be like we'll just lose sort of capability in that area, basically? Or Yeah, I mean, we lose collection. Also, you know, some of these people are, you know, they, they took that year in that war zone to get promoted. You know, I know that's a bad thing to say, but it, but it is a fact, you know. Um, when, when the FBI actually went to Benghazi about a month after the attacks, um, you know, I was talking to our security personnel. I was like, hey, why haven't we moved any, like, military assets closer, you know, to be a backup in case something happens while they're on the ground? Um, and they said, oh, we didn't want to ask for help because we didn't want people to think Benghazi was too dangerous, so then we weren't able to go there at all. So they didn't even put in a contingency for a month later when they were doing like their one day investigation in Benghazi. So if the terrorists would have went after them again that day, they would have been just as successful, unfortunately. That's crazy. And it, it's so crazy like to just hear about that. Um, like you would think like there are so many, you know, very professional and, and skilled folks working in, in these type of uh, jobs. Uh, it's just crazy to think. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, uh, Two guys that I, I know were um, Army Special Forces guys, and uh, I, I'm not sure what the deal is. I, I think this this element of the Army Special Forces is no longer functioning, but at the time it was, and it was called the Commanders and Extremist Force, and and they were basically a like a quick reaction force. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I know this. Yeah. Yeah. So they were assigned to Africa. Um, and they, I think they had just like passed whatever, um, you know, testing and stuff that they had to, or, or standards they had to meet in order to get, you know, the green light to, to, to work in Africa. And then around that time is right when, when this attack took place. Uh, and then I, I forget what the timeline was, but I don't know if it was like two months or something like that, but eventually they ended up going to, uh, Libya. Did you have any interaction or, or were you aware of any, like, U.S. special ops uh, being there? You Experts know, say like that two China months or so is hoarding a massive amount of food. They will soon have over two-thirds of the globe's corn reserves and over half of its rice and over half of its wheat. But when asked about it, China lies. 
One China expert says that they, of course, will never admit to something like that. Well, what does China know that we don't? When it comes to global food shortages, China is the canary in the coal mine. You see, China is the world's number one importer of food. They rely on the rest of the world to keep their people fed. So they can't afford to mess up or there will be riots, civil panic, or even worse, over a billion people won't have food to eat. What does this mean for Americans like you and me? Two words, food shortages. That's why it's a smart idea to stock up on a kit of the best-selling Four Patriots survival food. Create your own stockpile of the best-selling Four Patriots survival food kits. It's hand-picked in the USA. The kits are compact and they stack easily. They have different delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners. And their five-star reviews on the website rave about the flavor and taste. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase of Four Patriots Survival Food by typing in the code RECON at checkout. Just go to fourpatriots.com and use RECON to get 10% off your first purchase of Four Patriots Survival Food. That's fourpatriots.com. Use the code RECON. Um, they may have came. I mean, they definitely didn't come within two months because I was there at the end of November. Um, the, the thing a lot of people don't understand is at the time of the Benghazi attacks, as you said, this the SIF, right, this commander and extremist force, you know, there's supposed to be one for each of the, you know, these commands, right? So UCOM is supposed to have one, right? And like you said, AFRICOM is supposed to have one. You know, when Benghazi kicked off, the, the one in Yukon, the Europe one, was the one also for Europe and Africa, right? So, so yeah. you know, they, I mean, I, they were on a training mission anyway, right? But as you said, they didn't even have one um, on the docket to even call in that night. And then, you know, I know soon after they even pulled some of like the airplane assets from those units. So I don't even know if they even had the birds to deploy even months after Benghazi because they got some funding cuts and this and that. So I'm not sure um, they ever got into kind of an, an effective state, you know, after the Benghazi attacks, um, unfortunately. I mean, people might have come into the country, but, you know, at the time, so from, from, from when the attack happened until we closed in 2014, you know, not tons was being done, as you can imagine, because now things were really risk averse. We have two compounds, obviously, full of Marines. Um, you know, the environment changed a lot, as you can imagine. And the, being permissive and going out and, and, and doing good work was gone. Yeah, one of the guys... Um he, he had like a he had major issues and again I, I could just I'm probably just screwing up the timeline uh, but I know eventually they were in Africa and and uh, doing things in and around Libya yeah um, there was but, a time there was a time us supported um, unfortunately something called the Libyan National Guard um, we don't discuss it too much in our book um, unfortunately it was a um, they're the, it was basically the only military apparatus the Libyan government really ever created, even now, 10 years later. And it was it was um, led by um, uh, College Sharif. Um, he was famous for being one of the terrorists in the CIA black sites. And as you can imagine, that's who CIA, um, the U.S. government had to partner with and train. And then, of course, they were moving weapons and guns and terrorists and it ended up becoming defunct, but it but it was it unfortunately became a very very um, bad situation as you can imagine, um, and then Libya never 
tried again to establish a real military after that, like the official government of Libya. That's why the only military still in Libya is the opposition. So the Libyan National Army belongs to the opposition to the Libyan government. And then the Libyan government still pays militias and terrorists to fight for them. Yeah, and as as far as I understand it, um, things still aren't, you know, squared away in Libya. Like they're still having a ton of issues. Um, Correct. You know, running the country, um, and then uh, I think um, I think there may even be like some sort of uh, Wagner Group involvement uh, in in Libya, or at least um, in, in North Africa in general. Uh, yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, so, so so what happened is, so, so basically Libya has two governments running. So there's like the East and the West. Um, as I told you, the main government um, in the West is the one, obviously, that was paying terrorists and militias to fight for them. The government in the East then obviously started fighting the terrorists. They lost like, um, they started fighting in about 2014. Within less than three years, they lost 8,000 um, soldiers. So at the time, their general went to the U.S. government and said, hey, you know, can you give permission to U.S.-based PMCs, you know, private military companies to work with me? You know, he was actually a U.S. citizen even at the time. He's like, to work with me to go after these terrorists. They're also your terrorists, right? They're the ones who attacked you. The U.S. government refused because they were still aligned with the original government from, you know, 2011, 2012. Um, he then went to the French. The French said, hey, I got to fall in line with NATO. NATO's aligned with the U.S. on this. So unfortunately, the only option he actually had was Wagner. So the same thing happened in Mali. So so some of that is actually U.S. policy. So like so basically any the, according to like the U.N., NATO and the U.S. State Department, any U.S. company who wanted to work with that general at the time, they could have been charged so none of them touched them, as you can imagine, with a 10-foot pole. So, yeah, we kind of forced Wagner upon him. Um, and we, we do that in a lot of places. And then after the fact, we're like, oh, my gosh, Wagner's there. It's like, yeah, guys, um, we were offered it, and, and we didn't want it. So, you know, it's a, it's a really major problem, as you can imagine, in a lot of places in Africa. Yeah, I have a, I have a friend who is, um, he was in the French special forces uh i i guess just to make it simple it's the french sas i, I think they have a different mm -hmm. name for it um but he's african of african descent but he's spent you know years in france and he's you know he's fluent in french and all that and but he lives back in africa now and um uh, i do some like OSINT stuff and i was just taking a look at the central african republic and looking at <laughs> some of the things that uh wagner's doing there so I was just talking to him just to see if he, you know, he had any understanding of what's happening there. And um, and he was just explaining that uh, a lot of Africans, like, they're fed up with the French, uh, but they're mm -hmm. so fed up that they're willing to deal with the Russians, even though, obviously, they know the Russians aren't, uh, you know, the, the best to deal with either. Um, and then, of course, you have... Um, all across Africa, there's uh, reports of like war crimes being committed by the Russians. Uh, I was just taking a look at several uh, sort of African news outlets. Um, a lot of them are in French, uh, and I'm just reading some of the stories that these African reporters are reporting, uh, and it's just h horrific things uh, that are being carried out by Wagner Group, and then 
in many cases alongside government troops for that country uh, where they're just sort of, you know, mass slaughtering villages and, and uh, all these horrible things are happening. But what he was saying was that people, they're just so fed up with the French that they're willing to deal with the Russians despite all the, the, the stuff that comes with that. Yeah, I mean, it's going to depend on... I mean, I know this is going to come off as a really... Um, it's, it's maybe not come off well. It's it's going to depend on who the Russians get contracted, right? Because um, they're going to fall under the morals and ethics of that organization. So, like, Mali's a great example. You know, th- these individuals who took over the government there, they're called, like, the, the, the Junta or the Junta, however, you know, people want to pronounce it. Um, they enabled and allowed Wagner and actually basically probably asked him to commit mass genocide in Mali, right? Um, that's what they were actually paid to do, which is really sad. You know, luckily in Libya, you know, they've been paid to go after terrorists. You know, it's, it's a slightly different situation. You know, Central African Republic, it's even a different um, angle, right? I mean, Wagner really, their, their main focus to go in there was to take over the mines and and they, they control so much now of the mining industry in Central African Republic. Like even in schools, they teach Russian now. Um, so th- they've taken almost like over the country economically besides all the other issues. So so it really kind of depends on who lets them in the door and then how long they can go in that relationship. Um, and and they'll, they'll go the whole way if they can, unfortunately. Yeah, and then I think another thing that sort of makes it the situation complicated is like in the Central African Republic, the government, they are fighting sort of rebel groups and, and, mm-hmm. and uh, in some cases, I think terrorist groups. So they actually do need some sort of outside support. Uh, yep. And, you know, if the Russians are willing to offer that, then they're going to take it. Um, and so then just to talk about, like you mentioned a few minutes ago, like the, the U.S. had opportunities to fill certain uh, spaces within Africa. Do you think that uh, that was a failure on, on U.S. foreign policy to not do that, or and and uh, under which administrations did these decisions were these decisions made? Yeah, I, I definitely think it was you know a failed policy. You know, it was a mix of administrations. Um, you know, for Libya, Libya has just kind of been a failed policy since 2011. Um, you know, Mali. Mali was a little bit more of, unfortunately, a lot of things kind of started changing in ITAR. Um, They they started putting in a lot of things, um, you know, like the contract has to support different like social issues, you know, like that would align with places in the U.S., as you can imagine, but don't exactly align in um, Mali. So in Mali, those restrictions made it so those companies couldn't even bid uh, you know, on those contracts, if that makes sense. So, so again, Russia had no competition. So, yeah, most of that is written by the State Department. It's enforced by the State Department. So, so it is a fail, uh, a failed policy. There was a time um, during the Trump administration when he thought, "Hey, let's divert our support in Libya from this kind of government of Libya who supports the terrorists to Haftar." And, and people went berserk. They said it was a move to support Russia. So he unfortunately he backed away from it, right? Which 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 could have had a big change in Libya, um, and a positive change um, because he'd be backing the good guys for a change. So yeah, unfortunately, our government has not fixed Libyan policy, no matter if it was Democrat or Republican. 
you know, since we decided to get involved in 2011. So obviously, um, there's a ton of changes happening uh, all around the world, really. Uh, of course, the, the war in Ukraine has had a major effect on on sort of geopolitics and mm-hmm. security and, and all that. Um, but also, the uh, the Chinese are also making a ton of moves in you know what's known as the global south. Um, mm-hmm. You know, with their Belt and Road Initiative, they've given out billions of dollars uh, to countries, uh, you know, in Africa, South America, Central America. Um, but do you feel that um, just sort of policy-wise that there has to be changes on the, the, the U.S. government side in an effort to counter Chinese influence? Or is it, you know, I know some of the, some of the Belt and Road Initiative uh Investments kind of backfired because they 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 gave money to governments and they they weren't able to pay it back uh, the loans and uh, so they lost a, you know I don't I don't know if it was like 150 billion dollars or something in that range. Uh, do you think that the U.S. should be more proactive in countering the Chinese influence there, or are there in situations where they're making bad investments, we should just let them make those sort of mistakes? Sure. I'll do that in two parts. First, I'm going to talk about the bad investment. It's not actually a bad investment to the Chinese. You know, that was by design. They plan to lose money. I think the best example of it is if you just look at like um, Europe and Eurorail. So let's talk about Germany, right? And like their train system in the country. It never makes a a profit, right? It's never going to make a profit, but they don't don't care, right? They're like, we run it out as, as a loss because... It is that important to us. And so, so China's fine at running these places at a loss. The thing is, in Africa, China is competing with Russia and Russia is competing with China. U.S. is hardly playing at all. And most of it's because of these restrictions from the State Department on how where businesses can do work in Africa, the type of businesses that can be done in Africa, who they can work with in Africa, as you can imagine. There's there's a lot of people's hands get tied. And then even those governments are like, oh, my gosh, like, why am I going to jump through all these hoops with the U.S. government when the Chinese will come in tomorrow and do this or the Russians will come in tomorrow and set up our phone networks or whomever. Right. So so Russia, I mean, Africa is run by Russia and China. And so if U.S. does not start competing um, and have a real plan to compete instead of just tell those governments, oh, it's really bad to work with them, but we're not going to do anything for you. Um, they're, they're just they're not going to be able to play. I mean, think about it. If you're even a country and you want to buy like weapons. Right. So so the U.S. has all these restrictions and they're like, oh, we're not going to give you this one. We're not going to give you this one. Oh, and no, the one we do decide to give you, you can't use it for X, Y, Z reason. So then they go to like Russia or they go, you know, through something else like in India, but it's probably still the, the, the Russians. And, and they say, oh, we don't have those restrictions, you know, have at it. And if you buy our stuff, you know, we'll build roads and do all these other things. Um, so, so, yeah, the U.S. isn't competing in Africa. They, they, they talk like they are, but they're nowhere near um, China and Russia on the continent. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up the restrictions, Pete, because this is something that I've had discussions with people like off podcasting and just talking about these these issues um, where you have like all these situations where, um, you know, the U.S., will have, you know, like whatever country it is, right? Like maybe they, 
you know, they, they persecute LGBTQ people, like mm-hmm. gay people, right? And so the U.S. will say, like, we'll give you these, these loans or, or we'll give you these weapons or we'll send uh, special forces in to train your military if you do X, Y, and Z on the mm-hmm. human rights, gay rights front. And, and these countries are like, you know, this is our culture, like agree or disagree, right? This is, this is how we do things in our country and this is what we decided to do. So who are you to come and like try and push your ideals on us? Like we're old. We've been around longer than the U.S. was even an, an idea. <laughs> um, and then you have like you sort of illustrated like you have the Chinese and the Russians who say we don't give a shit what you do. Like we're we're going to do business with you. Um, and and I feel like the U.S. is going to lose if we don't wake up to the reality that the the Chinese are are now really competing globally and and the russians uh, are as well and and i think that um you know I, i'm not sure if you know like a a liberal administration or a sort of democrat administration has it in them to say you know what like you guys persecute gay people but we're still going to do business with you maybe because of the optics or the the politics around it, and I just wonder if there's talk about, you know, how to, uh, you know, let some of those things that seem to be holding back the ability to make deals that would counter the Chinese or the Russians. Yeah, I mean, I think the U.S., uh, as which is very visible, has not come up with a solution to that. I mean, they they have done a few initiatives, like hey private business, right? U.S. companies, you take the lead and you figure out this and you fix this problem. And then those companies are like, no, you didn't make any rules different in Africa where we can compete and do well and make money. And uh, you know what I mean? Um, so yeah, they, they, they try to put the onus back on, you know, industry and industry is like, hey, you're the one um, tying our hands. So there, there is no plan. Um, and sometimes I feel like we like that there's not a plan. I know that sounds bad, but it's just kind of like they, they don't want to take the political maneuvers, right, to make those plans because they have to make really big policy changes. And they have to sometimes say, oh, this was a failed policy. That's kind of the problem in Libya, right? If they make a big shift in Libya, then they're going to show, oh, wow, we had failed policy for a decade. That doesn't help any politician when they're rerunning for election. So, so unfortunately, a lot of these things they just don't handle. So do you think that I mean, like if, like if, if I can see this, and um, like I would just imagine that there are definitely folks in the government, you know, CIA or DOD, whatever, who who are talking about this. Um, is there any sort of movement or attempt to to sort of change some of this in the government, as as far as you're aware of, or is this just something that's just not even like on the radar? No, I mean, yeah, there's definitely a discussion. People would like to see changes. Um, unfortunately, those changes fall on the State Department. Um, so, you know, um, I have the least probably access of anywhere into the State Department, but that's kind of who would have to lead the charge um, and want to make those decisions. And they just haven't shown um, any interest in, in making those changes. And that's really who we all would have to rely on for those, those strategies and new policies to go forward. Uh, so I, I guess um, I guess it it started a little bit under Obama, probably towards the end of his tenure, and then a lot under Trump. And as far as I understand it, 
it's sort of continuing to a degree under Biden um, with their with this sort of like waking up to what China's actually doing and that they're mm-hmm. in many ways they aren't our friends and, and they have very sort of predatory practices and towards not just the U.S. but really they do it to everybody where they're, they're stealing intellectual property um, you know they're doing all these things that really sort of fall outside of like international norms and it's really it's what they've been doing for I don't know how many decades now uh, mm-hmm. in, in an effort to sort of you know, get to the top or, or get near the top. Um, on that front, you know, now that there's some, uh, I feel like awareness of what they're doing. Do you, do you feel that the U.S. is maybe taking proper steps to counter them, or are they maybe not doing enough, or you know, they can do more? What do you think about that? Well, I think there there is a huge shift to China. So they're now making the shift of resources to have an effect, um, as you can imagine. Um, but it kind of goes to what you said earlier. A lot of it's a little too late, right? Um, a lot of it is let's just throw every resource now at China and maybe not focus on some of the bigger pictures because China is really good at taking advantage, you know, of other situations going on and other crises the U.S. is involved in. And they just did a great job, right, of making themselves so needed, right? I mean, like, so many U.S. products come from China. I mean, COVID showed us just even, like, all the basic supplies we needed if emergency happened coming from China. So we spent all those years not focusing on China to now where they are really far ahead of us. So even this big shift is... um probably too late hopefully it'll be enough but when another big thing happens and u.s shifts its focus again that's what china's waiting for so so we either have to like be in and and this is a long thing you know like the soviets in the cold war and this stays our focus you know like there has to be something like that that's continual instead of us like oh this year our strategy is this country this year's our strategy is that country and it we're just not getting really great at anything even all those years in counterterrorism we never got really great at it, right? And now we're like, oh, that's done and terrorism's over. And now we're on China. It's like, well, we don't even know our lessons we learned from why we kind of failed at a lot of the terrorism stuff. So, um, yeah, we're really good, like the dog with the ball, you know, and the shiny object. But I don't know if we're really good at making long-term plans. And as you can imagine, in the U.S. government, people stay in their job one, two, three years, and then they move on to something else. You know, there's a failure of continuity, Every time a new boss comes in, they, they want to have a new strategy or a new plan or change the name of an office. So I, I don't even know if we're um, built as a government to take on China. Like, I don't even know if our thinking is correct yet. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Um, you know, obviously, you know, I think a democracy is better than a, a sort of dictatorship. Um, but when you're talking like long term strategy, um, the dictatorship has an advantage in some ways over a democracy like ours. And you just sort of illustrated what that is, where like a guy like Xi Jinping in China, you know, they have a strategy. Um, you know, maybe it's not perfect. I don't, you know, I don't think anything is. But, you know, he's in power for life. And then mm-hmm. wh- whoever comes after him is going to be someone who is molded by Xi Jinping's <laughs> thinking. Uh, so there will be a continuity of of policy and strategy, and then, like you mentioned in the U.S., you know, every couple of years there's rotations and changes. So, do you think that um, there would have to be 
sort of cultural changes to really take on the, the, the long-term sort of China issue? Yeah, I think you at least have to have some sort of cultural change in the big pieces that now work China, right? And say, hey, we're going to ta- ch- tackle China a different way because we've ta- used this same method on all these other things and we've had these all these missteps. So I do think they want they should want to take on China a different way because as you said, this is a strategic thing. This is going to be a hundred years with China. Yeah, it's it's really kind of fascinating, um, you know, to to look at the differences and and and, and I guess like, you know, in some in some ways, it's even from like a, a space of like an intelligence perspective, like it's it could be very difficult to like. You know, infiltrated a dictatorship because the it's a essentially a security state, right? Like China, mm-hmm. um, uh, and and you know, from their point, looking at us, right? They can send whoever over here, and it's it's fairly easy to get access to the the country. Um, you know, they have all these programs. Uh, so the and this is for the audience, like the. The Chinese government, they have like this, what they call like a civil military fusion where, uh, you know, they have uh, their sort of long term strategy is infused into their uh, economic situation or they have um, all these sort of institutes across the world that I think they call them the Confucius Institutes. And essentially they they try and recruit talent from around the world uh, you know they do it in the US they do it in Europe and stuff where they they try and get you know smart people to to do research for the Chinese government i think in some situations they may the folks doing the research may not even be aware of what's actually happening or and then maybe in other situations they do so they have all these ways of where they don't have to be innovative they can just steal the ideas and the technology uh, from other countries who are innovative like the US um, so they have a ton of ways to sort of infiltrate uh, U.S. society and, and um, you know, like they, they have their own sort of version of the iPhone or, the, you know, they have their own major social media networks. And some of them look almost exactly like what the U.S. has, but it's just their version of it. Um, so it, it's really qu- kind of fascinating. Yeah. And I mean, they also take advantage of our culture, if you, if you think of it that way, too. Like, you know, they, they send students here, they recruit students, you know. Um, but, you know, universities, like, it's not like the people who run them are, like, looking for spies. Or it's not like the professors are like, oh, I should watch this one person in my department. So, so they're in a permissive environment, right, where, where no one's going to um, suspect them anyway. And so they were smart. They can take advantage of that piece of all culture because in those places, you're just not going to have that, you know, that type of awareness that that something could be a threat or at least, you know, at least a counterintelligence threat. Yeah. And, and then I guess, you know, in some ways, like I guess um, even now it's still sort of politicized the right, the origins of COVID, mm-hmm. you know, just saying that COVID was leaked from the the one lab in the world that was studying coronaviruses, you know, and the the place it it the outbreak took place in this area in Wuhan near the lab. Even saying that, um, you know, uh, the virus may have leaked from the lab. People were being called racist for that. And, right. <laughs> um, 
it's it's so it's just like very convoluted and um you know i feel most of the circumstantial evidence points to the lab leak but you know just using the sort of and then of course you know this happened at the time there was sort of the black lives matter protest was taking place so there was the the, situ- the political situation here was very volatile right and and i feel that they took advantage of that and said oh it's it's racist you know just to even say that the the virus came from there and it's just it's kind of crazy to to think about it um but yeah they uh, they've definitely figured us out and uh, i'm just hoping that uh you know now that there seems to be an understanding of what they're really doing that we can sort of figure out how to actually counter all, all the things that they do exactly let's hope so Okay, so um, if anyone, anyone listening, anyone in the audience is interested in keeping up with you uh, on social media or uh, getting a copy of your book, where can they do that? Yeah, so our book is just um, on the two major online retailers. You can order on Amazon.com or like Barnes & Noble. Um, you know, if you don't order books online, pretty much any local bookstore, you can go in and just get it ordered. So you do, do need to order it. But yeah, you can get it sent to local bookstores. Um, and then we have just a very small page um, on Instagram to do with our book. And it's just, um, it's called at Ascari Media Group. That's A-S-K-A-R-I Media Group. Um, and that's where, um, you know, we, we post updates to our book. So as, as we told you, this is an ongoing investigation. So we've identified like two um, terrorists this spring, for example. So so their names and photos like are on that IG page, for example. So that's kind of where we're doing the main posting or if we have like an upcoming book signing we put it on ig usually oh before i forget i almost forgot um so i know like recently on social media you guys have been talking about um a particular terrorist who i think is going to get released uh and and um and you guys want to sort of keep him in custody or or Mm -hmm. i'm forgetting the details can you just talk about that quickly before we wrap up yeah no worries um, like, like I told you, the books are personal investigation. So the number one wanted terrorist from our per- personal investigation is this individual. His name is, is Ziad Balam. So he is basically, the easiest way to put it is he is the most senior Al-Qaeda brigade leader in um, Libya right now. So he runs a, a big chunk of Al-Qaeda in Libya's capital. So he was in Turkey. He goes back and forth to Turkey all the time because he has uh, like a prosthetic leg and that's where he gets his medical treatment. Well, luckily, finally, after 10 years of that, somebody watchlisted him. So he flew up um, on the 11th of July to um, Istanbul airport and they said, you're not coming in and you can't come back. So they went to um, deport him to Benghazi where he's actually wanted, you know, by, by the other government, um, of the general, um, the Libyan prime minister got involved and got him diverted to Tripoli. So a lot of people in Libya are like, Hey, he's been paying Al Qaeda to fight for him for years. He made this diversion. So so this individual Ziad, you know, can't get the death penalty over in Benghazi and can't be charged. And so, so, so the big fear is that um, he's going to be released. So we've been advocating, hey, um, you know, here's an opportunity to, to capture one of the senior Al-Qaeda attackers from the attacks and to prevent him from being released. So we're doing a big push to um, 
you know, get the U.S. at least focused on making sure uh, the Libyan government doesn't release him. Okay. Um, and yeah, and so for the audience, like just, you know, check out the social media. Um, they're talking about these issues uh, all the time. You know, it's I always see it in my feed. Um, and and there's ways that you can contribute if this is something you're interested in. And again, it's all on the social media there. Um, so, Sarah, I want to thank you for coming on here. Um, I appreciate you taking out the time to do this. Uh, you know, I, this was an enlightening conversation, and I know the audience will take some value from this um, to, you know, actually learn about some of these issues versus, like, you know, just watching some sort of mainstream media where they have, like, really horrible takes, I feel, on, <laughs> on a lot of these issues. No, I'm happy to be on. Thanks for having me.